Good morning. Thank you to Steve and Jen for doing music today. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, just before the music started, Jerry said, don't make any jokes about Ohio State beating Illinois. And I thought, I honestly forgot about that. And he reminded me. Um, I won't, I won't trap. Illinois is a good team. That's just Big Ten basketball. It's, it's a battle. But uh, John chapter 17 is where we'll be this morning. We'll finish up that chapter. Um, I'm sure many have watched the news or read articles this week about everything going on in Ukraine. And um, definitely pray for that nation and for those people and, um, and for the people of Russia. It doesn't seem like it's popular with them either. So just pray for that situation and for Europe. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Also, one last thing before I read. Welcome back to Ron. So happy to have you back today. And I would just like to say officially on the record that I'm a big fan of the beard. I've told that to everybody (laughs) who I've talked to, and uh, I hope it stays. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, Lord, as we had presented earlier so many requests, praise, prayer requests, Lord, to bring before you. Lord, we want to rejoice for this man, John Schmidt, returning back to work, Lord, as he has battled cancer these many months, Lord, and we're so thankful that he is recovering. Lord, we also want to thank you that we do have Ron back with us today. After a couple of months being in the hospital and then in rehab, Lord, we're so thankful that he is with us again, and we continue to pray for his recovery, Lord. We do pray for this situation in Ukraine, for everything going on, Lord, in that nation. Lord, we want to pray for Christians in that nation, Lord, but we pray for all Ukrainians, Lord. We pray uh, as they resist an evil invasion that's unjustified and unprovoked, Lord, we pray for victory in that as they resist, Lord, we pray for the global community, Lord, and for wisdom to prevail, Lord, in this situation, Lord, these are scary times, and in the midst of those, may we look to you and turn to you, Lord, that The world is uncertain, Lord, but Christ is our rock. Lord, we pray for our time in your word today that we would be pointed to you, pointed to your gospel, and pointed to the great love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Also, one last comment. I looked it up. 
Daylight savings time is not next week, but the week after. We come to the end of John chapter 17 this morning, the final interaction that Jesus has with his disciples before he's arrested in John chapter 18. The disciples don't know what's on the immediate horizon, but Jesus knows that his time with them is short. I feel like I've made this point about a thousand times in the last many weeks, but for the last time, John chapters 14 through 17 are one long speech that Jesus gives on the eve of the crucifixion. And it's his final teaching that he gives to his disciples. And as we've discussed, this 17th chapter is one long prayer that Jesus has given. And now we are in the final section of that last prayer, which concludes the final teachings of Jesus. And because of that timing and occasion and what was on the horizon, it should be no surprise that this prayer has a lot of content to it. In our previous section, Jesus was praying for his disciples. In today's section, Jesus is praying for his future disciples. That's where the passage begins in verse 20. When Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, referring to his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, his future disciples. So what Jesus is saying is that he is not only praying for his disciples who have traveled with him, ministered with him, and who were witnesses to him in his ministry, but he is also praying for those who will believe through the testimony of those disciples. And ultimately, that is every future believer from the time of Christ to today, till Christ returns. Because we too believe in Jesus and have heard the gospel because of the ministry of his disciples who preached the word, who wrote the word down, and who lived to spread that message and love of Jesus. And others have continued since the time of the disciples to carry that banner, have continued to share the gospel message across the world throughout the ages. And so on the night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed for all who believed in him and for all who would come to believe in him. And so that verse I just read is setting the stage for the rest of the passage. We know who Jesus is praying for. And in the rest of these verses, we see what Jesus is praying for, for his future disciples. And this morning, we're going to look at three things Jesus prays for. First, Jesus prays for unity with God. Unity between his followers and God. Looking at verse 21. Jesus says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, what Jesus is saying in this verse is pretty profound. That they may all be one. Unity among his disciples. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Jesus and God have existed in perfect and eternal unity. And that is the picture of what Jesus desires for his disciples. Now, do we accomplish that perfectly? 
No, because we're imperfect. But it, but it should be striking that this is the picture for the type of unity that Jesus desires for his followers. It should be a powerful example that Jesus is serious about unity within the church. And it should point us to how unfortunate it is that there is so often so much division within churches in America and in other parts of the world. But what Jesus is saying goes simply beyond, I think you should all get along. Because at the end of the verse, Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is pointing to the unity that he has with God as the unity he desires for his followers amongst themselves and with God for the purpose of reaching others. In other words, the love in unity within the church is its own evangelistic tool to the world. That the unity that we have with one another is meant to be so real and so sincere that it attracts others, that it makes the church more appealing to others, that it makes the church more lovely to others. Sadly, many people say that they're fine with Jesus, that they like Jesus, that they believe in Jesus, but they don't like his church. So many have had bad experiences within churches because of sin. But in these verses, we see the heart of Christ. And it is not just for unity, but for unity that is so strong that it draws other people into Christian community. Jesus wants the love within the church to draw people, not to repel them. Continuing in verse 22. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is still here pointing to the unity that he has with God. What does it mean that God has given glory to Jesus that he has given to the disciples? I think that the ESV study Bible is helpful. What it's saying is that Jesus is glorious and that he revealed that glory to his disciples during his ministry in the world. Jesus has displayed that glory in the people who know and follow Jesus are enabled to live lives to that glorious Savior and reflect that back to the world. It's not about putting on a show or putting up a facade. It's not about pretending to be nice. It's about actually being that person. It's about being a group of people who are genuinely so transformed and enamored by the truth of Jesus and his glory that our natural response is to live lives that reflect that goodness to the world. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, speaking to his disciples, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a vision for the followers of Jesus living lives to the glory of God and which have been so impacted by the truth of the gospel that it impacts those around us. 
We come to our second point. So the first part is unity with God. The second part is unity within the church. And certainly there's some overlap between these two ideas. Verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Now, if you have your Bible open, verses 21 and 23 are very similar. They even use most of the same words, but they're not identical. Showing what I mean, verse 21, the first part of that verse, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So there, pointing to the unity of Jesus and God as both an example of Christian unity and as the source of our unity. Because we have unity with Christ through the gospel, we are to have unity amongst ourselves as his followers. Verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. Again, it's similar, but different. I feel like I read these two verses about 10,000 times this week because I was having a hard time figuring out why they're both in this text. In verse 21, we have unity with God. In verse 23, Jesus is saying he is in us. Now, what does that mean? In verse 23, Jesus is pointing to the condition of the church and of his followers after he is gone when he says that he is in us. And there he's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. That that is Jesus living in someone. And because God is in perfect unity amongst himself, Jesus says, I in them and you in me. Jesus says that they may be perfectly one. Now, what does it mean to be one? Again, there is perfect unity between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because they're perfect. They are perfect in knowledge and holiness and wisdom and love and glory and eternity. But what does it mean for his followers who are imperfect and sinful? Briefly, I want to talk about four types of unity. First, unity of faith. That we are worshiping and following the same God and we are believing in the same gospel. Second, unity of purpose. That as Christians, we have the same mission in the world as followers of Jesus. What is that mission? To make Jesus known to the world. It's the goal for this church and for all churches who are committed to preaching the gospel. Third, unity of love. Love for one another and love for others as followers of the great God who loves us. And we're called to extend that love to the world. Fourth, it's a unity of belief, that we are united in the same common beliefs, core beliefs of our faith, that we believe in the same gospel and same Savior, that we believe in a good God, that we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and fully God and fully man, that we believe in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that it's one God and three persons. Each person of the Trinity is fully divine. That we believe that the Bible is God's word. We believe that we are sinners. And that the only way to be reconciled to God 
is through the grace of Christ. That is what we believe. And in believing that, that is what unites us. And so again, as we see in this passage, this unity between the followers of Christ is meant to be something that is so strong and so powerful that it impacts those around us. That when a person visits, it should be clear that this is a place of love and belonging. Even though we are all unique, even though we are all different people, that we have unity in what matters. The world is not unified. Our society is increasingly not united. So many levels of division, so much hatred and disdain over differences of opinion, different values. We're losing the ability to agree to disagree. The church should not be that way. And the church, the richest and the poorest, can come together on common ground and worship the same God. In the church, no matter what a person has done in the past, no matter how rough around the edges a person is, that this person and the person who's been walking with Jesus for many decades are both invited to come, neither of them deserving of God's grace and mercy and blessings, but both having it offered to them through Christ. In the church, the most accomplished and successful person is welcome, but so is the person who regrets missed opportunities or poor decisions. And the church, a person who knows the Bible backwards and forwards, and a person who's never picked one up, are both invited. And the church, the strongest family, is welcome, as is the most dysfunctional family, that everyone is invited to be part of the family of the Lord. All of these people, equally in need of grace, in need of forgiveness. And it is the same God who offers grace. And so we can see why that unity within the church is meant to be so beautiful to the rest of the world. Because where else is that the case? Where you should be able to find a home and feel welcomed and loved no matter who you are. The church. The place where everyone needs the same answer. The gospel. That we are sinners but there is grace. That we are dead but Jesus promises life. That we are fallen but there is a savior. And that he invites us to believe in him, to hope in him, and to walk with him. The church is meant to be a place where people are united in the knowledge that we are great sinners, yet that Christ is a great Savior. As D.T. Niles said, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. In our passage, now at the end of verses 21 and 23, Jesus talked about unity. He said, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He conveys, again, a similar thought at the end of verse 23, when he says, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Both verses made the point of the world being impacted by the unity that the followers of Jesus have. In verse 21, again, it says that this unity we have with God is meant so that the world can believe that Jesus is sent. But in verse 23, the unity that we are called to have as a church is so that the world can know that Jesus has been sent. What an important note on emphasizing unity 
and the power of what it reveals. And Jesus ends verse 23 with another striking idea that he does not mention in verse 21 when he says, You sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And he'll echo the same language at the end of the passage in verse 26. That God loves his followers. He loves the followers of Jesus as he loves Christ himself. What a thought that is. People who rebel against God. Yet because of the Son of God, he loves us as his own. With that, we come to our third point. Jesus has prayed for unity for the purpose of reaching the world and for our unity as a church to the world. But as I've mentioned, we do that imperfectly. But Jesus closes his prayer by pointing to where it all leads, to being with Jesus. Third point, Jesus prays for his people to see his glory. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says that he desires that we be with him where he is. It's a reference to heaven. But the cross loomed. The cross was needed for the disciples of Jesus to be with him. Because there was no unity with God due to sin. But Jesus has united everyone who believes in him to God through the cross. Everyone who believes in Jesus and has faith in the gospel. Jesus is glorified at the cross through his death and resurrection. While we have imperfect unity amongst ourselves in the world, there will be perfect unity in the presence of Christ in heaven. A few weeks ago, I quoted the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? And the response is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's what we're to live for. And in this verse, Jesus points to beholding his glory in heaven. Through faith, we, inv- we are invited into eternal life and the glorious presence of Jesus in a perfect heaven. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, as people who were dead in sin, there is glory in Christ because of the life he gives us. There is glory to being in the presence of the one who has forgiven us, the one who leads us, the one who has taught us, the one who has showed us where life was found and how life truly lived. But notice at the end of the verse, in his prayer, Jesus says, my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. While Jesus is glorified at the cross, while Jesus is glorified as the risen Lord, let us not forget that Jesus is eternally glorious. And the one who is eternally glorious came into the world in humility. The Lord of creation entered creation. The giver of life experienced death. Why? Because he desired for us to be with him. Now, in this long speech that we've spent, again, many weeks in, Jesus began in John chapter 14, and he said in verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. As a brief aside, I always wondered if I would be able to tell if it was my kid crying. And yes, I could tell. <laughs> In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus began this discourse by saying that he was leaving to prepare a place for us, and he is closing his speech by saying that we will be where he is. And so we live as his people in the world, knowing the hope that we have that is found in Christ. This week I heard a lyric from a song called Deliverance from a New Zealander who goes by the stage name Strahan. I assume it's his last name. But there was a line in that song that really struck me. My feet on the ground and my heart in heaven. And all of life should be lived in the light of the reality of heaven and the place Jesus has prepared for us and the fact that we will one day be where he is. In the final two verses, he will continue to speak of the glory which is revealed. Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, I'm sorry, and these know that you have sent me. Jesus addresses God as righteous Father, the only place in the Bible where that wording is used in that way. Jesus says, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Jesus reveals God to the world. During the ministry of Jesus, there is so much ignorance and blindness from the world to the truth of God the Father, whom Jesus reveals. So much so that Jesus was soon to be crucified by a world that did not know God. And this ignorance is most clearly seen at the cross from a world that killed its own Savior. Jesus came to a world that did not know God, and that world crucified him. The world did not know God, but Jesus did. He says, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. This is a reference to the disciples also knowing God because of Jesus. He reveals God. And so in the final verse of this chapter, and in the final verse of this prayer that we see from Jesus, he concludes by talking about how he reveals God to the world. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus says that he has made God's name known, past tense. He says he will continue to make it known. And in the Greek, the way he uses that is future tense. Even though the world will kill Jesus, who reveals God, that will not be the end of it. How does he do that? The truth of God, which Christ revealed, will continue to be made known as the gospel is proclaimed and people look to the cross and what Jesus has done. It will continue to be made known through the people of God who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and who share the message of the gospel. And Jesus himself will continue to make it known through his work that he does to this day as the risen Lord who rules and reigns in heaven with God. And he adds the profound note 
He will make God's name known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And this final idea from this prayer and this final speech that Jesus gave is where we'll close this morning. What's it all for? Jesus says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Jesus makes God known to his disciples. He invites us into a right relationship with God. And Jesus reveals to us the greatest love in the world. The love with which God loved Jesus. The perfect love that God has for Jesus. Jesus died so that we could know that love. Christians often get our approach to God backwards. We often think that if we're good and do the right things, then God will love us. That puts us in control of how much or how little God loves us. God doesn't love us because we follow the rules. God loves us. Jesus loves us in spite of the fact that we could not. But Jesus offers us the love with which God loves him. And the more a person understands that, the more a person grasps the love with which God loves us, the more transformed a person's life is. And so the Christian life is not be a good person so God will love you. The Christian life is in Christ, God perfectly loves us with the same love with which he loves Jesus and that we can live in the light of that perfect love from a perfect God. The Christian life isn't living to earn God's love. It is living with the knowledge of how much God loves you and the Savior who died for you. Do you know that love? Because Jesus invites you to know it. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we believe in Jesus, that he is the Lord who perfectly lived and that he's the Savior who died for us, by faith, God forgives you and invites you to live a new life walking with Jesus to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the hope of eternal life that we have in Jesus, of knowing him, Lord, and knowing your love and forgiveness through him. Lord, may we all be people who personally know and walk with Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.